are again. We're approaching the halfway mark on this retreat, this span of time that we've dedicated offering ourselves, our energy, our body, our attention to this activity of uh, awakening. Because to some degree we have a faith, we have a trust that there is such a thing as being able to deepen our understanding. We're not permanently, fatalistically, inexorably trapped by our worries and doubts and fears. some degree we have a trust in that process. That's why we're here. We might think we're moving through the retreat, but actually the retreat experience keeps unfolding within the heart. It was Friday night. That dissolved. Saturday, dissolved. Sunday, Monday. Tuesday. Time and experiences, although we might think we're moving through life, as we contemplate, we start to see life keeps manifesting on the screen of of awareness, so to speak. Shifting and dissolving. At this point in the retreat, after we've done some really hard work, we're, we're quite touched at the, uh, the willingness that uh, everyone has shown to be able to, to be with, for many of us, quite difficult states that we aren't ordinarily with. For quite a few, this uh, retreat experience is new. And even for those of us who've done many retreats, sometimes these first days are, are really challenging as we face undigested anxieties, undigested exhaustion, undigested drivenness, undigested dread, undigested yearning. So after bearing with uh, that for a few days, enjoying the sanctity of a place that is week after week, month after month, year after year for quite some time, 
been dedicated to simplicity, to mindfulness, to harmlessness. Even just on that level, immersing ourselves in this space is healing. And that combined in the work that we've done, it's, it's easy at this sort of point in the retreat to just kind of want to coast. And the, the retreat form can fray quite a bit, which is not bad. It's not that it's bad. All of us like a holiday, and since this is a true holiday, when we have moments of wholeness, actually being here, so delicious. Reminds me of my, my very first 10-day retreat. I think I alluded to it. This was back in 1976. I was a student at Oxford and going through hell of my emotional landscape of a involved in a, a breakup and involved in just continually striving to be the best and feeling, though I was 24, feeling 104. I started enjoying just, I didn't know what I was doing, but just I noticed when I sat quietly, there was a sense of, I've given so much attention to the outer world that the inner world just was begging for attention. So I went on this 10-day retreat. And the inner world was begging for attention, but there was all sorts of screaming and yearning and difficulty and doubting. There wasn't lots of instruction. We give lots of instruction compared to the instruction I got those first 10 days, observe. (laughs) (laughs) And I figured out it was about watching the breath at my nose. I can find my nose, I tell you. And I was like a snapping turtle on that nose. I just, because <laughs> life was so complicated. So I just was within and out, in and out. And it was hell for, for days. But sometime around this time, the third or fourth day, in between uh, the sitting sessions, I was just uh, standing by a bush. And in my landscape of things, you know, bushes didn't manifest very high in terms of tournaments or in terms of awards, in terms of great accomplishments, you know, bush, you know, like bush league, even in the language I was using there, it was just kind of not important. But I was just struck by the beauty of just standing looking, hundreds, thousands of leaves, not thousands, hundreds of leaves, dewdrops, each like crystal light, just that sense of the beauty that's, the bush was beautiful, but it was, I also sensed it was the beauty of just having the time to be there.
beauty actually comes from the heart. We've done a lot of work and many of us are having moments of just ease and peacefulness. And so I encourage us to use this time well, this halfway point, and and determine to use the time well. Each of us in our own way, so there's not just one. We each need to listen into our body, into our energy, into what's good for us. But I encourage us to use the time well because we, and it's fine to coast and enjoy special moments and like I did, but that, that moment showed me something of how much beauty and joy and meaning there can be in something so ordinary. That was a real incentive for me to want to pursue what, what's, what this contemplative path was about. That motivated me to, to leave Oxford and go off and be a monk for 15 years. And so we can, it's easy at this, this point on the retreat to kind of drift off, and that's, that's all right, but I'm just encouraging us to, because we're right at the heart of the retreat, and there are these beautiful moments which are lovely. But also, in this part of the retreat, We're going to be using some of that beauty, using some of that poise, using some of that composure and simplicity to look in to what we take ourselves to be. To the whole sense of what is me, what is mine. What is myself? And we have an opportunity to, to guided by these uh, very precious uh, teachings of the Buddha and the great saints and sages over time, opportunity to explore what causes suffering all the suffering within us, within our families, within our communities, within our world. And all the ways that we're striving to find ease and striving to find peace and striving to find happiness that actually are unfortunately misguided, causing all sorts of conflict, all sorts of endless frustration. So I encourage that we use some of this precious power that we've accumulated to to stay with this process. To be sensitive to each other. Even if if we, uh, just realizing we have an effect on each other. To appreciate, you know, for many of us, it's not easy to get time off to come and have an experience like this, to get our life into perspective. So to remind ourselves again that we affect each other and to, you know, try to 
when we come into the room, to, to try to come in at the beginning of a session if we can. Sometimes there's good reasons for being late, and okay, well then we come in and be sensitive, how can I come in quietly? Just to honor the, the, the work. And it's true also that everything is what we work with, and that if we keep wanting to have it, things are perfect and we resent. We start resenting things, resenting sounds, resenting coughing, resenting this and that, when actually it's, it's, it's human to get sick. We need to be compassionate. And sometimes we all cough, we all have situations where we, we make noise and we can be patient with that. Work with that as the human condition. But at the same time, we can try to be as careful as we can to, to honor each other's work. So if we're going around kind of like an elephant bounding through a place, thinking, oh, that's good practice for them. <laughs> that's not the right attitude. You know, uh, yes, everything's good practice, but if we're thinking we're doing it for somebody else's good practice, that's, that's reckless. So we, we work with the human condition, but at the same time, we, we try to honor the sanctity of the space. And if one is really getting into calm, just also to enjoy it, but also remember it's conditioned. It's fragile. Calm, that is, certain kinds of calm. I'm speaking from experience. For, for years, I was so attached to calm states in, in the monasteries, and I, I would, the sounds were driving me nuts. And then in clocks, <laughs> clocks were the worst, clunk, clunk. And so, you know, in some of our monastic retreats, you know, they would even, there, there would be, you know, ticking clocks. Even some of the ajans would bring these ticking clocks in. And I would, I would surreptitiously, between the s- sessions, shift them, <laughs> bury them even, even finding, <laughs> even finding cushions for them to absorb more of the sound until I, you know, finally started uh, remembering Ajahn Chah's teaching a little more. He said, you know, is that sound disturbing you or are you going out and disturbing that sound? <laughs> you know, as you're kind of fighting it. So I'm a little better now, and so now I actually realize, yes, I enjoy calm, but I'm enjoying working with how things are and exploring the calm that's not ruffled by things, that isn't disturbed. Calm is skillful. We can appreciate it. But certain kinds of calm, when the conditions are just right, is a little bit like when I was growing up in my childhood home, is on Lake Chickamauga. My 93-year-old dad is there, and he and mom built that house 60-some-odd years ago on Lake Chickamauga, outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee. It's a lake off the Tennessee River. And on some summer evenings, when it's calm, the lake is like glass. And the bay that we're in maybe is a 
a mile across, three quarters of a mile across. Sometimes it's so calm, so deliciously calm. You could almost whisper and hear it across the lake. Beautiful calm. Calm you could just drink. Delicious. But you know in the summer in Lake Chickamauga, then there's other people enjoying the calm at <laughs> and then not one end, but one other end, another end, about ten motorboats out. And that's how it is. I used to get depressed all the time after every meditation retreat because I would get attached to a certain level of the smoothness, the subtleness of the states. And those are skillful, they're all right, but it's important to remember that, they're, that the calm is, is conditioned by lack of motorboats, <laughs> lack of the wind, and that when the other comes, just to know that, and I, I still hadn't really contemplated my attachment to pleasure and my aversion to disturbance. It's skillful, those states are skillful, but it's also important to contemplate the disturbance and, and question what's, where's the disturbance here? So we've been looking at these hindrances, aversion, Desire, wanting the calm, wanting more of the calm. Aversion to sound, distraction, aversion to pain, aversion to whatever. Sometimes the aversion is too hard to be with, so we we have a subtler form of aversion. We just kind of go dull. Sometimes we just can't cope with it, and we just get restless. So we've been balancing our calming practice with our inquiry, investigating, and turning it in from disturbing my peace, and I'm upset, and how could you be so insensitive, and to seeing it as Dhamma. And I, I encourage us to, one aid to this process is, is the attitude of kindness. Kindness. The Buddha called metta. It's one form of metta when you're phrasing, wishing different beings well, and that's an important thing. But what I'm talking about is the 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 essence of metta, the seed of it, is a non-contention non-fighting, allowing, recognizing the perfection of everything is, is a condition. And so a kindness that allows it to have its space. Doesn't pretend to like everything, but it's not harboring you ill will. Even our aversion, we don't pretend, oh, I love the aversion. Not pretending that but not add, not harboring ill will to the aversion, not adding to it, allowing it. That softens the heart, opens the heart, so that you can then allow conditions 
the Buddha taught that when we, when we, uh, one of the blessings from this practice is that it, it makes it easier to get concentrated. One of the great obstructions to samadhi is aversion. Not liking this, not liking that. That tenses us up. Remember, ease is important. When we're practicing kindness, allowing, there's sounds, let the sounds, they come and go. Sensations come and go. That kindness is really helpful. And sometimes it's the case where the, the, the states are so powerful that there's nothing you can do except be kind and allow or bow. Another way of talking about it is bow into it, surrender. As I was growing up, I was used to having willpower that could do what I wanted to do. I could just do more push-ups to get trained. I was doing 500 push-ups a day. I was training for the National Wrestling Tournament, just climbing ropes. I thought, well, they might be better than me, but I'm going to work harder than anybody else. Keep working, working, training. But when I got to Thailand, I had something happen that I couldn't shift with will. Got really sick. Got typhoid. And uh, almost died. And then I was maybe, I don't know, 140 pounds when I got to, to Thailand. I was teaching yoga to the monks and this and that and doing handstands and things. My chest was so big. Uh, from I could walk on my hands for a hundred yards and do this and that, and I was helping the monks get fit. I, my chest was so big that the the Thai villagers thought I was a girl. <laughs> they made that joke, but I mean I I was really strong. And then when I got really sick and I had the typhoid, and then uh, you know for years I weighed like a hundred pounds. After you know, 30 years or so, I'm just now, you know, starting to get some of my strength back. But I met something I couldn't shift with willpower. Pain, inflammation, internal bleeding, states of not having the capacity to focus much, just states that were all over the place. And this kindness is really useful, this surrendering, this bowing into, acknowledging, oh, it's like this. And it was a, a real blessing because sometimes if we just control too much, we have the nice states we control. And then, and then when the difficult states come and we're not used to being with them, we feel totally overwhelmed because we've taken birth. We've assumed this is me, these nice states. And when they're gone, we're, we're, we're dislocated. Like I had a guy visit the monastery once. He was very tense. But, but he was wanted to meditate with us, so he... And, and we talk in our monastery kind of like here, you know, a lot of deep a lot of relaxation, being with what is and things like that. And he, we were meditating together. And then he, he ran out of the shrine room and the 
or stalked out of the shrine room halfway through. I talked to him afterwards, and I said, well, what happened? He says, I'm disgusted. I said, well, well, what is it? He says, your postulants, these are the novices that were there. He says, they're thinking evil thoughts. And they were just, he had this whole kind of idea of he's being attacked by evil thoughts. And then he was saying, my mind is 97% fragrant. I don't allow, you know, these bad things into the mind. And, you know, I mean, I don't want to uh, laugh at him because this, mm-hmm. but it's the approach that he had. And, and he had been really upset. He wanted to work in the leper colony in India, and he'd even been thrown out of there, you know, not even allowed to do that. And he was just in, enraged, but he was seeking to kind of control everything. And so we're working on calming and controlling, but also it's okay to relax and just see what comes into the mind. And sometimes if there's stuff that we're really pushing away, sometimes when we relax, that will come in. And, and this is what our uh, Western teacher, monastic teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, called the orphans of consciousness. The, the conditions that we lock away in the dungeons of... Uh, the dungeons of consciousness that we don't like, that we're ashamed of, or that we don't like, or that we assume is bad. The doubts, the fears, the dreads, the, the jealousies, the resentments. All these hindrances. It's one thing to be totally overwhelmed by them, where there's no perspective, but it's another to push them away, or even as this gentleman was doing, thinking that they were gone. When they would come, he would assume it was someone else attacking him. But in, but, but in, in this practice that we're doing, yes, we're learning how to focus, calm, but also if, some, if a state manifests, we're also learning how to welcome and know that state just for what it is. So then it's not a hindrance anymore. It becomes a dhamma. Our teacher said this is what frees, empties the dungeons of the heart. It frees the orphans of consciousness. So that the fears and the doubts and the resentments start to be touched by listening, by kindness. We start to notice their nature is changing. And this is the, something very important at this point in the retreat, is we're, we're now going to shift, shift our center of gravity just a little bit. We've been focusing on stabilizing, calming, steadying. But now as we turn the volume a little bit up on vipassana insight, we're starting to look at the nature, the nature of these conditions that we call me the nature of forms, our body, and the other forms around us, the, 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 the light and the dark and the cold and the heat and the wind and the stillness, the nature of our feelings, being pleased and pleasant feelings and neutral feelings that we're kind of bored, think nothing's happening, or really difficult, painful ones, the nature of perceptions, 
liking and not liking, and frightful ones, and attractive and seductive ones, and terrifying perceptions, the nature of impulses, wanting and not wanting, the nature of moments of knowing. We're, we're gonna, the Buddha then encouraged us in our vipassana practice to start to notice the characteristics of our experience. The first characteristic that he said is so profound to see is what the Buddha called anicca. Nicca means permanent. Anicca means not permanent. This sounds so obvious. Well, yeah, is the day permanent? No. You know, multiple, multiple choice questions. We pass as the day permanent? No. Are feelings permanent? No. You know, everybody would probably get a hundred. Is, uh, is your health permanent? No. We would probably all get a hundred. And yet, do we really know that? In a moment-to-moment way, the, the Buddha taught that if one really sees, knows, anicca, change, profoundly, that all the profound insights of what's called not-self and emptiness flow out of that. We shouldn't underestimate the power of not just being able conceptually to say things change. That's a start. We start conceptually. But the power of making it immediate so that right now the changing nature of my voice, the changing nature of the Dhamma talk, We don't look at that. We think, oh, it's a good talk, a bad talk, a boring talk, scintillating talk, another talk. (laughs) But when we go right to it, so-called talk, this thing, sounds as touching consciousness and dissolving. Touching consciousness and dissolving. And this so-called talk is being interwoven with moments of sensing our body, posture shifting, moments of seeing the forms in this room, intermixed with moments of hearing, moments of feeling, moments of thinking and assessing, hmm, I don't know about that, hmm, that's a good point, I've heard this a billion times. And that's a cascade of change, a cascade of change. And yet this is, you know, this so-called noun, this Dhamma talk, on my retreat. (sighs) My retreat, four days in, and how many insights have I? Did you hear that at that last little interview? That other person, they were going on about this experience, that experience, and I haven't had nothing. Happen. I've got to come up with something. <laughs> but, 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 but notice what, you know, our experience, all this kind of stuff, and yet, when we don't really understand, like if we really start to look into 
into this, it's a little bit like a waterfall. Just shh. Have you looked at a waterfall recently? In our monastery, we had a, a waterfall. Cascading when it rained waterfall. Our waterfall in the Hammer Pond of Chithurst Monastery. It's an ancient waterfall. They used to smelt. What did they smelt there, Tanisra? Iron, I guess. <laughs> Iron balls to fight the French with, she said. <laughs> I can't guarantee that, I'm not sure. But anyway, but when you go up to the waterfall, our waterfall, impressive, it's a powerful fall. If you go up to it, you try to grab it. We call it our waterfall. But it's just, you can be in awe of it. But you can't get it. It's changing every moment. When we see anicca, then we see the second characteristic, dukkha. Dukkha, the Buddha first talked about, meaning it's not reliable. That's not a value judgment. Meaning it's this way in this moment, but then it's shifting the next moment and the next moment. So it's sometimes translated as unsatisfactory, meaning you, 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 if you lean on it, thinking, just like that waterfall, our health sounds stable. Success, I'm a national champion, sounds stable. Or even I'm a total hopeless case. Sounds permanent, doesn't it? <laughs> Eternal. But when we don't see, we lean on that, that's, being, that's birth. Then when conditions change, we feel dislocated. I was leaning on, you know, all my strong muscles and health, and then, then it was, I was, I had to lie down for three, pretty much continually for three years, and for 10 years was really sick a lot of the time. Lying down meditation was my main posture. If we lean on a condition thinking it's solid and then that condition shifts, we, we fall. So if we lean on praise or lean on, well, a calm state. Why did I get depressed so often at the end of meditation retreats? I would get into a calm state that, similar to the Lake Chickamauga, smooth. it would seem like satisfying. Not that it was bad, it was good, but then I would, I, what's called, identify with it, lean on it, take my stand on it, take birth in it. These are different ways of talking about it. Jesus would say in the, he says, if you put your treasure where moth and rust doth corrupt and thieves break in and steal, that's putting your treasure on earth. When you take something that seems solid and yeah, that's, that's it, I've made it. Sometimes even the first conversation after the retreat, I'd say something and someone's eyebrow would move and this and that, and I would interpret it. And Did, did they say that right or not? Do they like me or not? Oh, God. And then where is that state? And this, so it's not that these states are wrong, but I was using meditation a little bit like that good lawyer, getting to a calm state but not inquiring enough. Combining with the calm to see that all these states are shifting and changing. 
learning to enjoy the calm. But when we contemplate dukkha, it's not in and of itself satisfying because its nature is to become otherwise. Just like the dawn perfectly becomes midday. And the midday becomes dusk. Oh, but wouldn't it be nice, as our teachers said, wouldn't it be nice if everything were nice? And they, I mean, but that's just a dream. That's not how it is. So when we see change and start to see that things by their nature become otherwise, dukkha is not a bad thing. We just realize that if you expect a condition to make us happy, some calm, some praise, some health, some circumstance, and you take it to be me, that's the recipe for suffering. So that leads to the next characteristic or contemplation, what's called anatta, not-self. When you realize that these conditions, these changing phenomenon, thoughts and feelings and circumstances are not our possessions. If they were, then we could just keep them. This, This body is ultimately, we call it mine, but it's ultimately not mine because its nature is to become otherwise and to die. Same with feeling, same with all these essentials of our experience. So when we, this contemplation of change, really learning to be with the breath changing, realizing it's not a thing. We call it the breath. We even call it an in-breath, but it's becoming otherwise and, and then it's gone. Then we call it the out-breath and then it's gone. And in our willingness to, to be with the changing nature of things, our whole sense of what we are starts then to shift and change. It's very profound. The Buddha taught about karma. He taught about the goodness that comes from generosity, the goodness that comes from uh, uh, kindness, the goodness that that, that comes from, you know, doing good things. But he said the power of even one moment of recognition of change is immense. Because as we will contemplate in the continuing days of the retreat, birth and death come by not remembering change. We take hold of something. We think it's mine. But when we really start to see change, especially in our thoughts and perceptions, all the ideas we have about ourselves I'm great or I'm terrible, or I'm not really understanding, when we start to, rather than just be trapped inside of those thoughts, being shaped by them, start to see them as changing dhammas that are dukkha, suffering, if we grasp them. That they're not really ours. They're part of nature. 
when we see thoughts coming and going, conditions coming and going, then rather than being locked into grabbing and rejecting, the condition starts to arise and cease and we start to sense the spaciousness of the heart itself. Because each sound, each thought, each impression touches consciousness and dissolves back into our what I call the other night, what the Buddha called the original brightness, the measureless, the measurelessness. And then even if all hell is breaking loose in the mind, it doesn't necessarily have to disturb us. When I was really sick once, thank goodness I'd had a practice at looking at things in this sort of way. But as I got really sick, then I got so weak that then I couldn't think properly. And uh, my nervous system was strange. I was like seeing eight movies at the same time and hearing trumpets blowing and seeing all kind of weird stuff. and. Uh, like winds were blowing through my body. It was just really weird, weird stuff. Um, now, if I'd been my old method of just using willpower, if I'd have tried to think, oh gosh, I'm crazy, I, I need to kind of clean this up. And that would be like raking leaves in a hurricane or raking leaves in a windstorm. You, you, I couldn't do that. But in just letting it be Dhamma, You can just enjoy the storm, letting it be changed. It is just what it is, letting it be. Then all that stuff is shifting and changing, kind of like lightning flashes in the sky, but letting each one dissolve back into presence Then that particular state wasn't, wasn't disturbing. So I'm encouraging us these last, um, this next part of the retreat to, uh, even if something is coming up that's uh, difficult, to listen to it, listen into its change, start to contemplate what we take to be me and mine, contemplate the stress of that and the ease of letting things go, because that's what they do anyway. The nature of conditions is to come and go. The first disciple of the Buddha that understood his teaching and what's called entered the stream, tasted Nibbana, had that simple insight. Whatever arises, ceases. Doesn't sound like much, but whatever arises, every in-breath arises and then it ceases and becomes the out-breath. Every sound arises and ceases. Every thought arises and ceases. Knowing that whatever arises ceases, we know if we grab hold of it, wanting it to be otherwise, it were, that's a recipe for stress. So when we realize we're doing that, we can have moments of just letting 
changing conditions be just what they are. Their nature is to arise and cease. And in not fighting them, there's the possibility of experiencing the peace that's been here all along. The peace that's inherent in the heart. Letting the Buddha have the last word. A young student came to the Buddha named Kappa, asked him a question. The young Brahmin student Kappa, Sir, he said to the Buddha, there are people stuck midstream in the terror and the fear of the rush of the river of becoming. Death and decay overwhelm them. For their sake, sir, tell me where to find an island. Tell me where is their solid ground beyond the reach of all this pain. Kappa, said the master, for the sake of these people stuck in the middle of the river of becoming, overwhelmed by death, and decay, I will tell you where to find solid ground. There is an island, an island which you cannot go beyond. It is a place of no thingness, a place of non-possession, a place of non-attachment. It is the total end of death and decay. This is why I call it Nibbana. There are people who in mindfulness have realized this and they are completely cooled here and now. They do not become slaves working for death, working for Mara. They cannot fall into his power.
sharing the blessings of our work above, below, and all around. All beings near and far, seen and unseen, good and bad. Loved ones, those we don't know, those we struggle with. May the blessings of our life be shared for the welfare of all beings. Enjoying the bliss of letting go and letting our goodness just shine. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.